Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, good morning. My name's Jamie. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor and elder here at Harvest. And if I haven't gotten to know you, so I look forward to that opportunity as the days move forward and have the joy of sharing our time together in God's word this morning. I think we all can agree with the psalmist uh, when he writes that it was good when they told me, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Amen. So this morning we continue <clears throat> and finish out our walk over these last four weeks through Romans chapter 8. So however you would access God's word this morning, I invite you to meet me in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 8, 31 through 39, these are the very words of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who's at the right hand of God, who intercedes, who, in, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 31 through 39. It's the word of God for the people of God. And God's people say... Praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do come before you, and we are, <clears throat> excuse me, confessing a few things. But the first of which is that we believe, through our confession, that the Bible is from you. And it being from you, that makes it truthful, it makes it authoritative. And Father, we come to it this morning, a yes for correction, but also for comfort, for healing, and for hope, that we would leave more assuredly standing in the truth that we would navigate, and not just today, but all the days ahead. God, we confess an agreement in the reality of the resurrected Christ, the central piece of this chapter, of what makes these verses come home in very real ways is the fact that the tomb is not empty. We praise you for that, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you'll notice as we turn to verse 31 this morning that Paul says at the very beginning, he says, what shall we say to these things? Now note that phrase. All right, if you're taking notes, you might write verse 37 in your margins because verse 31 and verse 37 are going to use the exact same phrase in opposite ways. They're going to feed and play off each other. And it's understanding the these things of 31 that make the these things of 37 and that link come home to us in a lot more powerful and palpable ways. So just note that as we walk through this passage this morning, but as good students of the Bible, which you all are, we see verse 31 when Paul says these things, we're meant to ask, what things? Or what are the things in which Paul is referring to and how, by knowing those things, are we to conclude this rhetorical question when he says, what can be against us or what can stand against us? And we're supposed to say nothing. Well, what are the these things that allow that answer to be true? Well, certainly, you would start in the immediate context, and you would say, well, what has he told us most recently? You go back to last week, or in the text that Ronnie preached, and you go, okay, part of these things is the fact that God, and only God, 
can take things which in and of themselves are not good, but bring good, hopeful, and fruitful results from them. And yet if we were to limit these things that Paul's referring to, to just the surrounding truths of chapter 8, we're really missing the weight of what he's saying. For biblically considered that these things of verse 31 references the entirety of the book of Romans up to this point. That Paul is saying, in light of everything that I have told you from the beginning of this letter until right now, because of these things, I can assure you nothing can stand against, or your translation may say, prevail against us. So what are the things that he's referencing to? Well, it starts in chapter 1, where he says, therefore, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. And in chapter 1, not only the power of salvation, but the progression of human depravity. It's chapters 2 and 3, where he explains the shattered spiritual state of both Gentile and Jew. It's chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, when he goes through, theologically considered, maybe the most important and powerful paragraph in the entire New Testament. When he says, hey, because of Christ and one free act of God's grace that Jesus has justified us, redeemed us, forgiven us, and promised us an inheritance. It's Romans chapter 4 when he brings home the idea that we are justified by faith alone using Abraham as the great illustration. It's chapter 5 when Paul sets forth the reality that we now, because of Jesus, can have peace with God. Amen? Why? How? Because as Paul would say beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5, Jesus is the second Adam. And he takes the curse of the first Adam and completely reverses it. Whereas the first Adam's sin was imputed to us, our sin is then imputed to Jesus. So his righteousness is imputed right back here. So that we now stand innocent before God, though we know we are guilty. It's Romans chapter 6 when Paul says, hey, by the way, the resurrected power of Jesus, yes, that is a historical act, but the effects of that and the reality of that now live inside of us via the Spirit. And that resurrected power of Jesus makes something possible. It makes victory over sin and the flesh possible right here, right now, in real time. It's Romans chapter 7 when he sets before us the great promise that we are now free from the curse of the law. Amen. And praise God, because if the law remained, we would have nothing but condemnation to expect. For if there was a law that brought us to God, none of us would ever make that journey. And yet, we get to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and though the curse of the law brought condemnation, we find out in chapter 8, verse 1, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have been redeemed by the power of the gospel, justified, forgiven, proclaimed innocent, peace back with God. Adam's sin and the curse of that uh, Genesis chapter 3 completely reversed in the second Adam, Jesus. Power over sin, daily victory now made possible because the curse of the law is not binding to us. And yet, in the midst of this life, Romans 8 says, suffering and glory will be the song and dance that sort of carries us through until we get to glory. Paul says, in light of these things, all of these things, what could prevail against you? Another way to rephrase verse 31, if you wanted to take it from a question and make it a statement, we would say, since God has done these things, nothing can prevail against me. And yet, understanding a little clause in verse 31 uh, is crucial. Our entire ability to take this truth, 
and approximated into real time hinges on understanding this singular idea. What does it mean for God to be for you? If you miss that, misinterpret that, or draw an inaccurate conclusion of what it pragmatically means for God to be for you, then I'll just, just note this. Everything will feel like it prevails against you. Everything. Okay, so what does it mean? What if you were asked? I'm asking you now. Don't answer. But I'm asking you now. What does it mean for God to be for you? Because, see, many would conclude this. Well, God is for me inasmuch as he meets the demands of my desires. So if I can project this idea of sort of my dream scenario forward, right, my dream family, uh, dream job, dream geography, with all the particulars of all those scenarios, that inasmuch as God makes my desires his desires, he is for me. As long as doing things for him or serving him doesn't cost me something. As long as no sacrifice is demanded. In fact, if God's primary role is comfort, ease, and care, making me feel good about me, he's for me. Others may answer differently. Maybe your answer to that is not so all-encompassing. So maybe it's not this demand that God in perpetuity must make your life meet some picture. And if he does, he's for you. Maybe your one scenario of determining if God is for you is particularized. It's singular and circumstantial. It's if God would just do this one thing, then I know he's for me. So maybe he would end your singleness by bringing that one particular spouse or he would uh, end your physical maladies by bringing this instantaneous cure or maybe he would fix your uh, financial woes or relational uh, chasms that have crept in. God, if you had just do this one thing, then I would know, I would know that you're for me. Now, God may do some of that because he really does love you and he really does care. None of that is what Paul means by God being for you. God being for us is in no way determined by anything that he does for you right now or anything that he does for you in the future, though he will do things for you. What Paul is referencing, if you want the unshakable evidence, the unwavering proof, the argument that is case closed, can never be tampered with. But Paul says, if you want to know if God is for you, you don't look in the present, you don't look in the future, you hang on to a definitive historical act in the past. God gave his son. Case closed, he is for you. Uh, some of you know, my wife Shanna and our kids and our family, some of you have been sanctified them in the kids' ministry of Harvest Church. I love my kids. I love, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I spent yesterday, half, we spent the first half of our day yesterday with our kids bouncing around, uh, bouncing around basketball gyms in Memphis. I coach both my oldest boys, and I love it. I love being there with my guys. I love watching them process all the panic and pressure uh, that is first and second grade basketball. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, you're just kind of volunteering to babysit other people's kids for two hours. Uh, but I love it. I love seeing, okay, what do they listen to? What do they not listen to? And so I was coaching yesterday, 
with kind of this sermon, this text in the back of your mind. It's the curse of being a preacher. You never really get away from it. And so I'm thinking through it. And it just kind of hits me that I cannot, I think with any accuracy, articulate to you uh, the degree to which I love my children. I can't. I could try, but it would still fall short. I tell you that because I'm trying to bring into view a point that I know to be a fact, but it's really uncomfortable for me to tell you. And that is this. Uh, I love my children more than I love you. Not only that, if you were to put me in some distant hypothetical that raises this question, my kid's life or yours, I just want you to know I'm going with my kids every single time. And you could then rightfully look back at me and draw some conclusions from that. And you could say, okay, I know Jamie loves me, but there's a potential point in time when that love would fail and its limits would be seen and it would stop. Because there are things that I would withhold from you, but God doesn't. See, what does it look like for God to be for us? It's God does the one thing we could never do for ourselves. It's the one thing we would never do for one another. It's the one thing he asked of Abraham, but he never required. It's the fact that God stops Abraham's knife because he knew one day he would not stop those nails. God withheld nothing from us. And we have, in that one definitive act, the case-closed answer. We no longer have to debate, is God for me? Now, hear me on this. If you root God's foreness, which is probably not a word except in Alabama, so I bring it to you this morning. <laughs> right? I've blessed you with that. We've now traveled north. But if God's foreness for you is circumstantial, please know this. You will not be able to answer this with any definitiveness. In fact, you'll say, well, if God is for me and it's circumstantial, what can be against me? I'm going to tell you, you know what can be against you? Everything, everything now can potentially be against you. But not if it's rooted in this. And by the way, this is how Paul answers it. Look at verse 32. How does Paul determine the case-closed reality that nothing prevails against us because of Christ? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, all things that come in an abundant life with Christ, all the heavenly realities. What Paul is saying, ultimately, ultimately, there is no earthly opposition that can conquer a heavenly reality, nothing. And so we look at this list of Romans and the realities of chapters one through eight, and we say, well, what opponent, what enemy, what force of evil or what plane, plane flight could ever nullify and overcome the love of God in my life? And the answer is there's not one. There's not one. He keeps going. Here, look at verse 33. Asking again, he says, what shall bring or who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. 34, who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But more than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding. 
on us. Now, let's think about that. His first question, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Let me just put myself in that position. Who can bring a charge against me? Well, let me tell you, lots of people. And lots of their charges and lots of their accusations would be correct. I did those things. I thought those things. I said those things. Well, who could condemn me in that? Well, God. For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. So God can condemn me in those things. So I'll tell you this. The charges are true. And the condemnation is just. So why then does Paul lead us through two rhetorical questions that draw different conclusions? Because we ask this in this text, and you know what we're supposed to say? No charge can be brought against me. We say, who can condemn me? No one can condemn me. Well, why? What's the determining factor? Because the charges are true and the condemnation is just. And Paul is leading us to two opposite conclusions. How is that possible? Because look at 35. There is a risen Savior who's, who's alive, who's at the right hand of the Father doing what? Continually and perpetually interceding on our behalf. And so does sin still right now have real earthly consequences? Yes. Don't pretend like it doesn't. Does sin, if you're in Christ, ultimately lead you to a place of guilt and condemnation where the charges stick for all eternity? It does not. Why? Because here's the picture. You're before God and you're being accused. Right? So Satan's there, someone's there, anyone's there accusing you of anything. And he says, oh, but God, did you not see? Did you not see what Kylie just did? And Jesus says, well, I got that one. That one's on me. Then you look around the room and say, oh, but hey, nobody saw. But do you know what Steve, what just went through his head? And Jesus jumps in front and says, I got that one too. And you have a high priest before the Father that in order for God to see us, he has to look through his son. So every time, do you know what he sees? The absorption of his wrath and our sin on his son. So he looks through Jesus. And by the time he gets to us, it is innocent righteousness. That's the power of the gospel. So Paul wants us to answer that question with, no accusation can ultimately stand. No eternal condemnation can ever remain. Why? Because our Savior is alive. And in his hands and his feet are still the nail-pierced scars where the wrath was absorbed and its flow was interrupted so it cannot get to us. Paul says, who can really be against you? If that is true, who or what could possibly Stand against you. And then he's going to move from this doctrinal assertion to lived, real-time autobiography. That's verse 35. 
So Paul wants us to know, hey, the Christian life is not simply uh, this mental ascension to a set of doctrines and, and, and truths, right? So it's not, it's not boiled down or relegated to the, uh, the questions of the Westminster Confession or the doctrinal statement at Harvest Church. The doctrine is deep, it is rich, it's beautiful and necessary, but that doctrine has to intersect real-time existence. And Paul wants to say, I don't only think this stuff is true, I know it's true. Because I've been through some things and I've watched God show up and I've seen that there is nothing that has ever separated me from the love of God. And that's where verse 35 is autobiographical. Every single thing in verse 35 has already happened to Paul save one. Save one. Look at it with me. For uh, his own experience. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation. He's been through that. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger. He's already been through all those things. Saying, I've been there, and I've done it, and I've watched God show up. I know this is true. There's only one thing he hasn't tasted yet, and that's the sword, but he knew that was coming. He says, even in that, I know this will be true. And in that, we pause to say, hey, the Christian life is meant to be a dynamic, experiential life with a powerful God who created all things. Now, let me grant you, it may not always feel like that, but that is true. And I will tell you, guilty is charged. There are stretches and moments and realities for me and you that if we were honest, we would say, what we have projected forth is not that. It's not this dynamic intimate, resurrected, powerful interaction, life-transformed walk with Jesus. It is somewhat joyless, dull, and powerless. Paul says, hey, you can't just know the doctrine in your head. Like the beauty of that doctrine necessarily impacts the dynamism of our daily living. Now, that doesn't always feel like some big, you know, whatever, like these, you know, the spiritual 4th of July just always popping off in your life. But the way that is tasted for a lot of us is that power of the resurrected Christ still holds us even in the most difficult times. We still worship in the midst of pain. We do see our lives changed, albeit sometimes it comes more slowly than we want. So let me tell you this. If you made a profession of faith 20 years ago and you look and say, there's no victory of sin in my life for the past 20 years, I just want to encourage you. Would you revisit the empty tomb? Would you again think through what it actually means for Jesus to be alive? If your Christian life is marked with these kind of spontaneous emotional responses and for a season you feel really good about God, so you got to jump back into church or jump back into a Bible study or, uh, you know, you're going to go 30 days and never miss a devotional time, but it always just creeps back out again and you ebb and flow on your desires of how you feel about God, I just want to pause and ask you to revisit the empty tomb and question what does it actually mean for Christ to live in me? Because the power of the gospel is a transformed life. I'm convicted by that. 
I know this to be true. I know whether it's in the morning or midday or evening, whenever you pause to open yourself up to the scriptures, whenever you take a moment and set aside to pray, that we are doing that to a God that made all things. That we are opening ourselves up to a God that by a singular word of his power uh, holds every natural law of the cosmos together. It holds every cell, fiber, and tissue of our body together simultaneously at the same time he's holding the cosmos together. He holds together every chemical compound, every element on the periodic table, does it all by the one simple whisper. That is the God we open up ourselves to. And that should be dynamic and powerful and transformational. So Paul says, hey, I don't just know it. I don't, I've tasted it. I've seen it. But notice his linking of tasting the resurrected power of Jesus. It wasn't when things were going great, was it? Look at his biographical references. Tribulation, trial, persecution. Even in his impending execution, most likely by beheading, which is why he references sword, he knows Even in that, I taste Christ's resurrected power. So even in knowing him, Paul is painting this picture. It's not always going to be easy and smooth. So he brings us to verse 37. He says, now this is how we respond. This is how we know. This is how we know that God loves us, that in all these things, there's our phrase. Remember verse 31? These things which reference all these heavenly realities and promised blessings in Christ Jesus that are unshakable, unchanging, can never be taken from you. These things in verse 37 are all the horrors of earthly reality. So in one sense, Paul is saying, you got to be rooted in these things, 31, so that you can navigate these things in 37. And the these things of 37 are going to make the these things of 31 far more precious than you ever thought them to be. So he says, how do you get through everything he's just laid before? He says, you got to know that you know that you know that the these things of 31 are true and that because of those things, you and I are more than conquerors. But be careful. Because that idea of being more than conquerors, I mean, that's like a, that's a great men's conference message. You know what I mean? You get a bunch of guys to go and you pump them up and you're going to run out of your you know, spiritual Jesus t- tunnel under the game of life or whatever the illustration plays out. You know, and you, I'm more than, you know, your chest comes out a little bit. I mean, you know, hypothetically, if I had one, it'd come out a little bit. And, and you know, you, you walk a little taller, a little straighter. I'm more than a conqueror. That's not what the text says. The conquering of these things it has nothing to do with me. Notice he says, we're more than conquerors, not because of your love for God, because of God's love for you. So how do we come out on the other side of all these difficulties as conquerors? Well, it's because even if our love and faith fails, God's doesn't. It's when my strength runs dries, his remains full. That we conquer because God first loved us, not the other way around. And the entirety of our life is a response to that love. It's a response to the, these things of verse 31. It is that which carries us through. It's not just bold, cold uh, bravado 
that makes us a conqueror. It's actually the surrendering of the fact that I can't conquer it apart from Jesus. And in acknowledging that, I become more than a conqueror because now it's Christ through me. That's how 37 works. Now that verse, I will tell you, that verse, like so much of Romans chapter 8, were really good, sound, biblical points on a page for me up until three and a half weeks ago. And I could, I could have taught it. I could have explained it. And I, with full conviction, would have told you it's true. For three and a half weeks, God's forced me to live it and to taste it. And I can tell you, not just by mental assent, but by lived experience, that verse 37 is true. And I know it's true because the last three and a half weeks of my life has not been marked by my love for God as much as it's been marked by God's love for me. I know verse 37 is true because I have been to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, and I've seen the gospel going forward. I know verse 37 is true because my friend's death didn't defeat me. I know verse 37 is true because the death of my friends have brought people into eternal salvation. I know verse 37 is true because in places where there used to not be any warmth towards the gospel, that now there are spiritual sparks flying everywhere. I know verse 37 is true because I've seen you come here every week and proclaim, yes, God gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I know 37 is true because I've watched people respond to pain with worship, sorrow with witness. And because of those things, I stand here and tell you, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus regardless what comes our way. Now Paul moves from the truthfulness of 37 to his concrete conclusion in 38 and 39. Now I want you to know something. When Paul says in verse 38, for I am sure, that is calculated conviction. That is thought through, processed, lived, tested. When Paul says, for I am sure, it is case closed. There's no philosophical argument you can introduce in the future. There's no experience that could come his way that would disrupt it. There's no emotional experience that would derail him. Verse 38 is a statement of conviction. It is not an emotional response to a momentary thing. Paul says, what I'm about to tell you, I am sure. And I am sure it will never change. So what is he so certain of? Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you want to know what? Case closed. Don't fear the future. Don't fear the present. 
Can it be hard and disruptive? Yes. Can it separate Jesus from you? It cannot. Paul says, I know it to be true. Let me, let me, and maybe a little bit of a turn of tone, use his conclusion uh, to segue to my conclusion. And I want you to hear this with the gentleness but directness for which it's intended. I'm going to plead with you to not be arrogant enough to think that you're the exception to the end of this verse. That somehow that reality applies to everyone but you because somehow you're in some special center circumstance where, oh, you just don't really understand or you don't really know what I've done or you just can't really walk in my shoes or if you just only knew. I don't know, but he does. And my exhortation is the arrogance it would take to place yourself outside of these parameters. So even for you, in whatever third-party scenario you've created in your own mind where you stand outside of the biblical imperatives, I just want you to know, please drop your hands this morning. Let the walls come down. This includes you too. There is nothing if you're in Christ that can snatch his love away from you. There's nothing you've done or said that can prevent his grace from flowing towards you. The Christian life is a rhythm of repentance and faith rooted in a one-time historical act where Jesus really did die. He really did absorb God's wrath and he really did walk out of the grave Easter morning. Amen? That's not going to change. And we are secure as Jesus is alive. So in a couple weeks, we're going to begin, well, I think two Sundays from now, kind of our six-week season of Lent as we move towards celebrating Easter morning together. My plea to you right here and right now, myself, all of us, Please don't wait six weeks to contemplate the empty tomb. If we've learned much from the last three and a half weeks, isn't one of the things that time is of the essence? That nothing is promised? Would you really chance your eternal reality on just saying, you know, I'll get to that next week? Is not the claim that someone actually got up who was dead and walked around and is eternally alive, is that not at least worthy of a small investigation? Would you just chance the fact that it being true that you may stand before God and say, help me in my unbelief? I will tell you this, right here, right now, is the time to know that you know that you know that these things of verse 31 have come home to you by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Right now. Right now is the time for you to finally seriously contemplate, 
Are you just playing religious rhythmic games or do you really believe Jesus Christ is alive? I know he is. I can look around this room and see evidence of a risen Savior. So harvest, today's the day. Let's not waste any more time. Let's know that the these things of 31 are what allow us to navigate the these things of 37. And it's the things of 37 that make the things of verse 31 so dear and so precious. This is the day that we conclude with Paul, I am certain. Would you pray with me? God, I confess that. Now, I'll confess that I don't always live like it's true. I know that. But I know it is. I know there's not a thing in existence that can put Jesus back in that grave. I know there is no thought of philosophy, no liberal theological lecture, no archaeological discovery that can ever thwart the realities of Romans chapter 1 through 8. I know that. I know that it's the promises and truths of 31 that have helped us navigate the in all these things which none of us anticipated. I know that we conquer these things not because of inner strength and bravado, but because as we realize that we have to die to ourselves, it is Christ reigning in us the true conqueror. And God, it is only you that could link your sustaining love with life's prevailing pain. Yet we've tasted it and we know it and we stand with conviction with Paul saying, we are sure. For that we praise you and we thank you in the matchless name of Christ, amen.